Well, if you've been with us, you know that we finished up last week our series in Ezra and Nehemiah and some of the various prophets of the uh, post-exilic time. And what we do, our tradition since about, I think, 2018, has been uh, to take part of the summer and do what we call summer psalms. Uh, you know, we uh, tend to, here at Meadowcroft, we tend to preach through straight through books of the Bible, and we like to alternate between Old Testament, New Testament, and different genres, and summertime gives us a chance, especially since so many of us are uh, gone on vacation here and there, and, and more sporadic in our attendance, to, uh, to preach, uh, instead of preaching through a book of the Bible, just to, to preach various psalms uh, in, in the book. And it also gives us a chance to look at, really, what is the Psalter, or the uh, hymn book of the Bible, uh, and, and the psalms just contains so many various themes and, and various emotions that God's people deal with. And so it's a good opportunity, I think, in the summer to dip into the Psalms. And so that's what we're doing this morning. The Psalm that we'll be looking at this morning is Psalm 2. And so if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to open it up. And in fact, I would keep it open uh, throughout the sermon because I'll be referring to specific verses in this Psalm. And uh, we'll go ahead and read now the word of the Lord, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all. Who take refuge in him. Well, as we see right from the beginning of this psalm, the psalmist begins with a question. The question we see here is in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And you can see here in this question, and really in in verses 1 through 3, if you just kind of take it as a whole, you see that two categories of human being are described. There is the category of the peoples or the nations, and then there is the category of the rulers or the kings. We also see two categories of action being described. One is what is described here as rage or as setting themselves against. 
And then you also see this, this other type of action, which is pl called plotting or taking counsel together against. And what you see here in this, these first three verses, really, is that what the psalmist is describing is really the whole population of the earth, whether it be the average citizen, the peoples or the nations, or whether it be the leaders that you find on the earth, the rulers or the kings, or whether it be a type of just out-and-out -out visceral rage, or whether it be some kind of plotting and scheming. What you find here is that everyone is involved. All of humanity is involved with this kind of rebellion. Notice that the psalmist's question is not, do the nations rage and do the peoples plot in vain? The question is, why do they? That all of humanity rages, that all of humanity plots and schemes is really assumed. It is assumed that everyone is doing this. And interestingly, if you think about it, I was a history major in college, and a lot of my history classes dealt with conflict. You don't even have to be a, a history major. You don't even have to be someone who reads much history. All you need to do is really turn on the TV and watch the news today, and you'll see that there is conflict all over the world. Human against human, nation against nation, peoples against peoples. That's all over the place. All you really need to do, even if you don't turn on the news, is just look inside your own household. Really, you look at, at the people in your house. If, if your home is any bigger than one person, uh, you know that there is conflict, human conflict that happens all the time, person against person. But notice here in Psalm 2 that in this battle, all of humanity is united. Whatever their disagreements might be against one another, whatever fighting they might have against one another, in this battle, every nation, every ruler, every person is united against one foe. And the foe listed here is the Lord God himself and the Lord's anointed one. Now the question is, why? Why would all of humanity be completely united in this one battle? Well, I think the answer is given in verse 3. Notice what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What they're saying as they struggle against God and against God's anointed, is away with their constraints. We don't want God's constraints any longer. But the obvious question is, what constraints? What are they fighting against? I mean, those of you who have probably all seen uh, babies be born, in fact, you were once born, None of us came out of the womb bearing shackles. None of us came out of the womb with our hands tied behind our back. 
There is no visible bond. There's no material shackle that God wraps around each one of us. But there is, we see, this fierce raging against some type of shackle that has been put on all humanity. Well, what we see in Scripture is that there is an intense desire in every human being for what we call autonomy. Autonomy really means being a law unto ourselves, self-rule, self-law. Human beings are not born with visible or material shackles, but notice here that human beings don't want any bonds or any cords placed on them by either God or his anointed one. Notice that in what they're saying, even by the statement itself, it, it means that the constraints are already present. They are not fighting to try to keep these restraints off of them. They are fighting to rip already existent constraints off. Well, if these aren't material and visible constraints, then what are they? Well, Scripture tells us that God has given his creation at least two things. One is an order, and the other is a law. God has given an order to his creation, and he's given a law to his creation. The Bible begins, if you just read Genesis, by describing all of reality as being comprised of two categories, and only two, creator and creation. Creator and creation. And it is God, the creator, who has the authority. It is God, the creator, who has set up the order of things. It is God, the creator, who sets up how the universe operates. It is God, the creator, who sits on the throne and, and who created human beings and who therefore has the authority to tell humanity how we must live. It is God who sets up the order of how things operate, how the atoms work, how the laws govern. God set up a hierarchy. He is the creator and the ruler, and human beings have been created to be subject to him. Furthermore, the Bible says that God has not only set up a hierarchy and order, but that he's given humanity a law, a law that we must obey. That law, Scripture says, can be summarized in this way. We must love God with everything that we have and all that we are, and we must love our fellow human beings with everything that we have and all that we are. That is God's law. Love is the essence of God's law. And his law, this law that we must love him and love our fellow human beings, is something that he has, the Bible says, implanted in each one of us. So that none of us can claim ignorance to this law. Paul tells us in Galatians that the law functions as a guardian 
or as what we might call a conscience. In fact, Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, speaks of this. Paul says earlier in Romans that the Jewish people were given the law on stone. If you go and you've read through the Bible, or even if you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, you see that uh, Moses carries down uh, two uh, stone tablets upon which were written the law of God. Uh, But Paul talks about how the Gentiles who weren't there that day and weren't given this law on tablets of stone, he says, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, meaning they don't have that physical copy, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. Now, he's not talking about being autonomous. He's saying they are a law to themselves. He says, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. Now, what did humanity do with the order that God gave us and the law that God gave us? Well, again, we find that in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. Rather than willingly submitting to the order that God gave to us, rather than obeying God, submitting to him and doing what he commanded, and rather than loving him and obeying him, we decided that we wanted to do what we wanted to do. And what you find in the fall, in the garden, is the first instance of this casting off of the bonds and cords of God. And Scripture tells us that since the fall, every human being has a propensity to want to be free from the constraints of God's law and order. It's interesting in verse, uh, here in in, um, verse 3, what is said, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. If you go back and you look at uh, God's creation, What is it that he says when he designs human beings? Let us make man in our image. And we turn around and say, oh yeah, well let us break your bonds and tear away your boundaries. Paul describes this rebellion in great detail in Romans chapter 1. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen.
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. They, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but get approval, give approval to those who practice them. That is the state of humanity. And you can see just what happens when we read Romans chapter 1 when we burst away and try to tear away from God's law and order. We think we're creating a utopia, but what we end up creating is misery. We see really clear examples of this rebellion of God's law and order today all around us. Uh, when you look at Genesis, we see right from the start that God designed people who they are. God designed men to be men and women to be women. God gave us our intrinsic qualities. And what do we see in transgenderism? But we see an active tearing away of those bonds and those cords in an act of rebellion. What did God do in Genesis? He created marriage. Created marriage to be between a man and a woman. And what do we see in same-sex marriage? We see an active rebellion against what God has created. We want to tear away those cords and those boundaries and say, we want to do what we want to do. We want to define marriage how we want to define it. Both of these are very obvious and very in the limelight right now of casting off what we consider to be God's restraints. But think of your own life. How many subtle ways do you, each and every day, cast off God's restraints whenever it doesn't suit you? We all do this. None of us is immune to this. Scripture says that everyone is a sinner. Sin is lawlessness, the Bible says. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means that every single one of us in this room, whenever God's law and God's order is inconvenient for us, we decide we want to cast it off and be a law unto ourselves. Think of David. David, who wrote this psalm, the book of Acts tells us. David was a man after God's own heart, a man committed to serving God and submitting to him and obeying him. And, and we see in David such a high regard for God's law and order that he wouldn't even lay a finger to harm God's anointed one, King Saul. But when David decided that he wanted Bathsheba, a woman that he considered beautiful, a woman who was already married, he decided that God's law and order didn't matter 
a wit. He cast it aside to get what he wanted, and therein lies David's sin. Romans 8, 7 says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. So there is this worldwide hatred and rebellion against God and his anointed one. But notice here that all of this is in vain. That's part of, I think, the psalmist's astonishment. Why are they doing this? Why all of this raging? Why all of this plotting? Why all of this effort if it's all for naught? Because this is a fight that all human beings, no matter if they uh, all unite together, this is a fight they cannot possibly win. Think, if you will, of the most lopsided or one-sided human-to-human fight that you can think of. The one that uh, came to mind for me would be, as a parent, when you are trying to put an article of clothing on your two-week-old infant who is fighting as hard as he or she possibly can to keep her arm out of that article of clothing. How hard is that fight? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of cute, you know? You just kind of take your hand and put it in there and you see she doesn't want it to go, but it's going, you know? <clears throat> but this is far more of a mismatch than that because that is creature to creature. We are talking here about creature to creator. Notice how the psalmist describes God here. He who sits in the heavens. What an amazing way to describe God. God is completely out of reach of this attack. Completely. He is completely unassailable. He is completely in charge. And it's seen in his reaction. God laughs at them. He mocks and ridicules their toddler temper tantrum. All of us parents have been there before, I'm sure. When your two-year-old toddler is screaming and red-faced and clenching their fists and stomping around and shouting all kinds of things at you, one of my children, uh, <clears throat> we used to put him down for a nap or something that was pretty basic and common and every day, it wasn't some real tragedy, uh, but you know, we'd put him down for a nap and, and his, he would yell and, and, and say to us, I don't love you or like you or want you, and I want you to leave forever and never come back. That was his exact line every time. <laughs> now, when I walked out of the room, did I go to Michelle and weep and say, I'm sorry, we can't live here anymore? We have to go. <clears throat> no. In fact, when he was saying that to me, I had a hard time not laughing. As he said it, I had to stifle the laugh and kind of walk out and I'd go to Michelle and say, he said it again. <clears throat> God isn't threatened at all. Though the whole world unite against him, he isn't wringing his hands. He isn't upset. He isn't trying to change plans. He isn't getting angry. He's not the least bit concerned. He's laughing at all of our raging. 
In fact, look, God is not terrified of us. We are terrified of him. The psalmist says God speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. See, there's a great irony in all of this is that human beings are the ones who rage against God and we are the ones that end up being terrified. Notice, too, in verse 6, that God finally has his say. Verse 6 is the center of the entire psalm. Verse 6 is the focal point of the psalm. When God speaks, he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's as though after all of the the bombast and the, and the chaos and the yelling and the screaming and the fish shaking and everything of the first three verses and all of the rebellion and then God laughs and then he just makes one statement. God says, as for you, you can rage and you can get angry and you can rebel as much as you want, but as for me, I have set my king on my holy hill and nothing that you can do will stop it. God doesn't even say, I will set my king. That, that alone would have been a, a strong statement uh, recognizing his sovereignty. But he says, I have set my king. That's how certain this is. God has done whatever he wanted to do, regardless of how much it angered and terrified the kings and nations of this world. And then in 7 and 8, we see this holy one, this anointed one, speak himself. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now David wrote this psalm and on one level the psalm can apply to him because David in Old Testament times, the king of Israel was God's anointed king. The king in Old Testament times was known as God's son and all of these things. But ultimately, uh, this cannot be about David because look at what this person says that the Lord says to him. I will make the nations your heritage. I will make the ends of the earth your possession you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now David was not God's only begotten son. Who could this be talking about? Well, if we read the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, it says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God's Son is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And God's Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? 
So the author of Hebrews is saying, this psalm is about someone far, far greater than King David. Now notice that the anointed one out of all of humanity, this anointed king, this only begotten son of God, is the only one in this psalm who is not raging and fighting against God. He's the only human being on earth that is perfectly submitted to his father. He is the one who is perfectly submitting, praying to God. Rather than raging to God, he is asking God humbly for all things. And so God promises this one, this one, this only anointed one, that you will be the ruler and the heir of all things. Out of everyone on earth, you and you alone will rule. Is it any wonder then that everyone rages not only against the Lord, but this anointed one. If, if God has given this anointed one all authority, if he said, you are going to rule all of the nations, then it makes sense then why all of the peoples and all of the nations and all of the kings and all of the rulers would also hate and rebel against and try to cast off the cords of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, that's not a good decision to make because fighting against the Lord Jesus Christ is also a fight that we cannot win. Notice in verse 9, what is said? You, anointed one, will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. There is no threat to the Lord's anointed. He is God, and so again, cannot be threatened. In fact, he is the one who one day will reign with a rod of iron. Verse 9 speaks here of a day when God's king will take vengeance on the wicked. You know, we tend to think that vengeance is wrong. Well, it is true that vengeance is wrong for us. But vengeance in the hands of Almighty God is good. The Bible speaks of this. Isaiah 34, the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Romans chapter 12, if possible, Paul says to all of us, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance in the hands of God is good. Vengeance in the hands of God is right. And so we see here that one day, this son, this anointed one, will bring vengeance on the earth. Now you would think that the psalm would end there. The kings and the nations rage against God. They rebel against God's rule. They state their autonomy. They try to rip God's laws and order away from themselves. And they rage and hate his anointed one. All of this would seem to be nothing but a statement of impending doom for everyone. 
because God laughs at them. He's not threatened by them. He installs his king anyway, and then God's king will bring vengeance on God's enemies. But notice that the psalm doesn't end there. Instead, in verses 10 to 12a, God graciously gives a warning. God doesn't have to give a warning to these rebels, but instead he says, look, stop rebelling against me. Stop pushing away my law and my order. Stop suppressing my truth and unrighteousness. Stop trying to be a law unto yourselves. Instead, turn to me. Instead, serve me. Instead, submit to me. Instead, he says, kiss the son. It's as though, I think the image here is bowing the knee and kissing the signet ring of the ruler rather than trying to be a ruler yourself. When a parent tells a child, if you do that again, you will be punished, what is the parent doing? The parent is giving a warning. The parent will punish, but the warning is given because the parent would rather obedience than the punishment. Understand that God is issuing this warning so that people don't perish in this way. It is in the nature of God to be merciful. How many times does the Bible describe God as merciful, as long-suffering, all throughout? Just go back to Genesis 3, the very first instance of rebellion, the first instance of ripping away God's order and his law. How did God respond? Not with justice, he responded with mercy. God took away their flimsy fig leaves and he clothed them in animal skins of the first sacrifice ever made for sin. What are kings and rulers of this world warned to do? They are warned to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The exact opposite of what they're doing now. The Bible speaks of the long-suffering Lord, but it never speaks of a forever-suffering Lord. Notice here that when the Son's wrath is kindled, it will be quickly kindled. Now, does that mean that there will be no escape for any of us? If we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God then what does that mean? Well, all have rebelled. All have sinned. But notice here that not all are destroyed. Notice the last line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We see here how Psalms 1 and 2 are kind of like the gateway to the book of Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 are uh, neither one is attributed to anyone, any particular author. And Psalm 1 begins by speaking of the blessed one. And Psalm 2 ends by speaking of the blessed one. Who is it that in all the world is in this category called blessed? Well, it is that person who takes refuge in the Son. You see, the one place 
the one place where a person can be safe from the wrath of the sun is in the sun. Where is that ever the case? (laughs) When someone is bearing down on you with their wrath, when is it ever the case that you find refuge in that person? And yet that's exactly what's being said here, that there is no refuge from him, there is only refuge in him. How can this be? Well, in Acts chapter 4, we find this psalm quoted. It's quoted by Peter and John. When Peter and John were preaching the gospel, they were arrested by the chief priests and the elders of the Sanhedrin. They were arrested and they were threatened. You are not to preach the gospel anymore. What do they say? Well, it says after they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, because they had also healed a man, a man who had been uh, an invalid from birth. So, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote this psalm. Why did the Gentiles rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and again against his anointed. And listen to what they say. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. In other words, Peter and John saw that what happened there in the crucifixion of Christ was the fulfillment of this psalm. That when Pontius Pilate and Herod and the, and the Jewish people and the Roman soldiers and everyone came together as one, it was as though the whole earth was represented there. And everyone on earth focused their anger and their rage against the Lord's anointed and put him on a cross. But listen to what they say. You would think that that would be the end. You would think that that would be doom for the whole earth. If God sent his anointed one, his precious son, his only begotten, the holy one, the one anointed by him to earth, and we came together as one and put him on a cross and crucified him, that that would be it for humanity. But what do they say? They say, for truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, in the crucifying of the Son, all they were able to accomplish with all their scheming and all their anger and all their rage and all their hatred was God's sovereign plan. In all of our anger, in all of our hatred, in all of our rage, all we do with our rebellion is fulfill the plans that God has. Friend, what about you? Where do you find your refuge? You find your refuge in the sun.
When a hurricane is coming, there are really only two categories of people. Those who take refuge from it and those who don't. And those who don't either don't think it's going to hit them or think that if it does hit them, it won't be as bad as it's been predicted to be. Well, friend, don't do that with God's vengeance. You see, there is a storm coming against sin and rebellion that none of us can escape. And furthermore, if we try to bear it on our own, it will be as bad as the Bible says it is. You see, the sad part of Psalm 2 is that people not only reject the Lord, but they reject his anointed one. Which means this, that human beings not only reject God's law and order, but we also reject God's love. That's the sad part of this psalm, because in the brilliance of God, he turned all of the hatred and all of the anger and all of the scheming that we did against him into the one vehicle that saves those who hate God. Look again at the statement. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When was Jesus set on the hill? The one moment in history when he bore hell on earth to save us from our rebellion against God. 